We'll start with a quote uh, from John Newton. John Newton, he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He has a story of Amazing Grace. John Newton was, he was actually a slave trader. He lived in England and then he was converted to Christ and he gave up his ways. He repented and then he gave his life to Christ in ministry. And here's one of the things he said. He said, if I ever reach, if ever I reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Three, three wonders. There's something underneath each one of these wonders that Newton's talking about. Um, at Waco, sometimes we call these myths of grace. If you just went through Welcome Home, these are fresh. But for everybody else, it's been about a year and a half since you heard me talk about the myths of grace. The first, the first myth of grace is that grace isn't free. Grace isn't free. Some of us think because of what we've, what we've done, we don't deserve grace. If you knew what I had done, then I, you would know why I, I can't get this. It's not free. I, I haven't measured up. There's, there's some measuring line that you have to attain in order to get grace, and I haven't done that. Grace isn't free. The second myth is that grace isn't costly. That grace isn't costly. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book on discipleship called Cheap Grace. He says it's, it's grace without the cross. It's grace without discipleship. It's grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate and crucified. He says it's cheap. It, there's no cost to anybody. It doesn't actually move you or change you. It just leaves you right where you are. And so today, I'm talking to a room full of people who are probably experiencing one of these two kind of temptations when we think about grace. And then underneath those is this belief that grace isn't for me. Grace isn't for me. Now, what I want to do is put Natalie Stafford up here um, to share. But I won't ask her to do it publicly. So let me move on. I was, uh, we were praying before uh, with the people leading worship, and uh, she just captured this so well. Um, let me just speak for myself, though. Um, I come from a family where it's easy to help other people out, and it's harder to receive help from, from them. And one of the reasons is because we think we have to earn everything. And to receive something as a gift from somebody else, it feels like I don't deserve it. It feels lesser. Now, Natalie spoke that really clearly this morning um, because her life right now is filled with so many gifts of God, and it's just overwhelming His goodness. Grace isn't for me, and some, some because maybe there's something unique about you. Uh, grace isn't for me because I don't look like everybody else who's experienced grace. I'm, I'm not the same age or the same gender or the same ethnic background. There's this fear that I don't belong because of something about me. Grace isn't for me. For some of us, grace isn't for me because of a guilt or a shame that's kind of associated with us. If you knew what I had done or if you knew what I haven't done, then you would know that grace isn't for me. Grace isn't for me sometimes because of that pride that I was just speaking to. It's because we strive and we work and we labor because we think that grace isn't for me. I have to actually attain it myself. I can't receive it as a gift. I have to do it myself. So in that feeling of insecurity, we think, I will secure it. Grace isn't for me. 
righteousness is, and so I have to work for it. There's a self-righteousness that may be underneath some of our feelings of grace. But today, these three wonders, these three myths, there's one parable that's going to tie them all together. One parable of Jesus. It's Matthew 22, 1 through 14. It's a weird parable. Um, I'm going to warn you. Last week, I talked about how confusing Jesus can be. And sometimes you go to a text and you're expecting to see Jesus like meek and lowly and kind and nice to everybody. There's not a lot of stories about nice Jesus. He doesn't seem to be a nice person. Kind? Oh, Lord, yes. Merciful, gentle, um, awesome in every way. But nice? Today is not a nice text. So um, I'm, I'm convicted of this. Last week, I, I was convicted of this too, that if you come to Scripture and you're never offended by what God has to say, it's very likely that you've made yourself the God of Scripture. <laughs> In other words, you're putting yourself over whoever it is that you're reading about. So sometimes it can be really important just to kind of put yourself underneath the authority of God, just to be reminded that His Word is actually the defining marker of good and evil. So uh, today, I'm, I'm kind of warning you that we are confused again by Christ. In fact, I was, I was looking at one of the churches I really love, great preacher, great author. He did a 77-part series on the Gospel of Matthew. That's a lot. And do you know what? He skipped this text. He didn't, he didn't have time for this one. I get it. Some, some text you just want to skip on over. Um, but we're not, we're not doing that today. Today we're going to dive into the one parable called the wedding banquet. This is actually part four in a series that's on eating with Jesus. And what holds this series together are basically these events in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus shares a meal with somebody. We looked at the Last Supper. And we saw that when Jesus wants to define his death and resurrection, he doesn't give a message. He gives a meal. He gives the bread and the cup. And somehow, by doing this, his death and resurrection come to life in a brand new. He is made known in the breaking of bread. We looked at the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at the feeding of the 4,000. And both stories, different as they are, are showing Jesus' offer. He says, you give them something to eat. And then last week, the, the woman, the, the Canaanite woman, who, who's pleading and contending with Christ, And she says, you give them something to eat. And there's this balance of human and divine that come together at the meals of Jesus. So today, we're going to look at human and divine once again. We're going to look at free and costly grace. We're going to look at a story of exclusion, people cut out, and inclusion, people welcomed in. All of it happens in just a a short, short passage. Let's dive in. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. A couple of things we need to see as we're diving into this text. Them. Who's them? Them are these chief priests and scribes who were leaders in the temple. Just for setting's sake, this is the last week of Jesus' life. Just a couple of days ago, he marched into Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He cursed it and drove people out. And then each day, he keeps going back, and he's saying some of the most controversial things anybody has ever heard. People are questioning him. Where do you get authority to say and to do this? And he says... Like, I'm not even going to answer your questions. And he starts telling these parables that, that are really drawing attention to this figure who's the son, the son of the father who is rejected. But why does he speak in parables? Parable, 
parable is like a, it's almost like an extended metaphor. It's an illustration. And Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, the reason he talks in parables is because he wants to hide some things from those who don't have ears to hear. And he wants to illuminate some things for those who have ears to hear. So today, the invitation is, if you have ears to hear, pay attention. Jesus has something that will be obscure and clear at the same time. This is meditation literature. It's meant to sit with you. He's not trying to give a systematic theology that solves all your your questions. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to give this odd illustration that burdens you. By sitting with it, you, you are leaning in and drawn in. Your ears are attuned to the one who's speaking. So he says, the kingdom of heaven, this is what most of his parables are like. What does it look like when God comes into this world? He says it looks like this. It looks like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. A king who prepares a wedding for his son. Now, this is a little flipped, right? And already some of our cultural expectations of weddings are a little different. Now, we know weddings are a big deal. They were certainly a big deal then. But normally it's the bride who's planning the wedding. I've got to be honest. In my wedding, I was just like, whatever you want, Kels, whatever you... A few times she was like, I just want you to have opinions. Okay, I'll have opinions. You keep disagreeing with me on my opinions. Okay, well, (laughs) here you go. But here the the king, the father, is actually throwing the the wedding. And who's the father? Well, the father is the father. (laughs) And he's throwing a wedding banquet for his son. Wedding banquet is a really important theme in the Old Testament pictures of salvation. It is the theme. Whenever Scripture wants to portray salvation... It doesn't look like the, the portrayal that I sort of picked up in my church of origin or my, my family. There was always like clouds and light, and it was very ethereal. And I'm not sure if there was even substance. It, it seemed more invisible in my mind. That is very much not how Scripture portrays salvation. Scripture begins in a garden where people are eating in abundance with God. And that symbol of eating in abundance with God becomes the symbol of salvation. It's the symbol there in Exodus at the Passover. Passover salvation. Whenever the people are rescued from Egypt, he gives them something tangible. He gives them lamb and bread to eat. He says, I want you to remember that you are eating with God. This is a picture of salvation. After the the Passover, they go into the wilderness. And it says that the, the leading priests, they go up on the mountain. And there they ate with God. They ate and they drank with God. This is what salvation looks like but especially in the prophets. Now, Breon read this for us today from Isaiah chapter 25. He says that in that day, when salvation comes, when the kingdom is finally here, he says it's going to look like a a feast. It's going to be a table with the best foods, richest wines. It's going to be, see how tangible it is? It's, It's very material. So it's no surprise that when Jesus brings salvation, he says, here's how I want you to remember it. Remember salvation by eating and drinking every week, the bread and the cup. These are symbols of salvation that point to what in the book of Revelation is called the wedding feast or, or this wedding. Revelation 19 says that the marriage supper of the lamb and of the bride, it's here and you're invited. You see, over and over, the symbol of salvation is very personal. It's very relational, and it looks like a people around a table. Did you know that the Oikos logo is people around a table? Now, most people don't 
pick up on that? They're like, is it a crown? Yes, sure. It, it's that too. It's a circle with people around, 12 people around the table, no less, um, which is exactly where Oikos Church started, 12 people around my table in, in our home about a year and a half ago. So here we are. We're multiplying these expressions of little kingdom of heaven outposts in the city of Memphis. This is actually central. Uh, we talk about this sometimes, that sharing the table, that eating with Jesus is the keystone habit of the people of God. It's the key, it holds everything together. It's where faith and hope and love come. And just as I was mourning and crying, we break the bread and we drink the cup and we remember that though our questions aren't answered, some of them are. And, and the bread and the cup answer those questions for us. So the wedding banquet is the metaphor for salvation. And Jesus is telling a story of a son whose wedding comes. But look at this key word. He sent his servants to those who had been invited. Invited is the NIV. ESV is going to use the language of called. Same word. The people who've been called. This word invited or called is going to be used four or five times in just a few verses. He sends, the king sends his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. But they refused to come. You see, a king isn't just like a, a friend. A, a king has authority. He has power. And so when the king speaks, you should listen. But that is exactly the opposite of what these people do. So who, who's, who's the king? It's the father. Who's the son? It's Jesus. What is this wedding banquet? It's this picture of the kingdom. It looks like salvation. But who are these servants? These servants seem to be the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, the ones who come and they say, hey, listen up. The kingdom is coming. The, the wedding banquet is here. You're invited. But they didn't listen to the prophets. And then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Why would he send more servants? In, in that time, it took a long time to prepare a, a feast. And this is sort of like the custom today where you have a save the date and then the actual invitation. It's like, I want you to get this on your calendars. Okay, everything is ready on this time and in, in place. Come, come. So the, the first servants go and they say, save the date, everybody. This is like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the ones who talk about the wedding that's coming. And then the new prophets come. This is probably like John the Baptist and his disciples. And they're saying, look, the lamb is here. The wedding is on. Here's the Messiah. But it says, everything is ready. Come to the wedding. But they paid no attention and went off. This paid no attention is, it feels very American to me. This is like, oh, great, politics, I, I don't care, you know, apathetic. Um, king wants me to do something, somebody, you want me to do something? Nah, I'm just going to do what I want to do, how about that? He, it says they, paid, they were apathetic to the invitation, you know, in very different ways. Some went to his field, another to his business. So some people turned to like the money-making endeavors of agriculture and commerce. But some seized his servants, remember these are the prophets, mistreated them and killed them. This is what they did to uh, Jeremiah and the prophets. This is what they did to, where the, the people reject the prophet. This is exactly what they've just done to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14. 
And so he's saying some mistreated him, treated them shamefully is how the ESV puts it. And then it says the king was enraged. Now, normally we would read a story about God becoming angry and we get a little nervous, except that this is basically a political revolution that's happening here. So imagine it like this, um, an American embassy in a foreign country, perhaps one that's at war or where there's conflict, what would it, what would it happen if the ambassadors were pulled out of the embassy, mistreated and murdered by people who were expected to obey kind of that land's laws and commissions? Well, it would be an act of war. Their a response would have to happen. So in, in the metaphor, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. You can't murder the, the ambassadors of the king and expect no consequences. This is a political revolutionary act. And so the king was enraged. He sent his army and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. A couple of weird things are happening here, but some of them are very specific metaphors that Jesus is using. A couple of weird things. So he sent his army. Wh which army did the king send to destroy the city? Historically, he seems to be talking about specifically what happened in AD 70. This is about, I don't know, a generation after Jesus died. The city of Jerusalem, with its leaders and its temple priests, the city of Jerusalem was invaded by the Roman army. The city was destroyed. Hundreds of thousands, perhaps, in the region were killed, and the temple itself was burned to the ground. Not one stone was left unturned. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. He says he destroyed those murders. Notice this, that the king doesn't, he doesn't destroy everybody. He doesn't seem to destroy the people who just went to go care for their fields and go care for their businesses. <laughs> he brought justice to bear. The, the picture of what we're supposed to be seeing is of a king who cares about justice. And when you have a political revolutionary act against this king, there are consequences. But it says their city. This is so odd to me because obviously if the king is over this area, it's his city too. And I think this makes a lot of sense of the city of Jerusalem. It is the city of God. And yet, God knows that, man, that, that threw me for a second. So God knows that they have, they have so turned against him that the consequences are coming for him. All right, we're just going to do it like this today. Colby, just, you can turn those off if you want, I guess. Not sure what's happening. So then he said to his servants, remember the prophets, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. The did not deserve to come is the language of unworthy. They, they didn't, I wanted them here. They didn't want to be here. That's on them. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. The street corners is this language of, it seems to be where the city roads meet the country roads. It's like, go out of town. And I, I want you to expand the search, not just for this small place. I want you to go into the neighboring places too. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, whenever he tells this story, he calls it the highways and the hedges. I want you to go into the interstates. I want you to go into the next state over and start pulling people into this banquet. Invite them anyone you can find, not just the first invitation. So the servants went out into the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, the bad, the wicked, as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. You see, if 
if Israel is invited and they reject the offer of the Messiah, the Messiah is now going to go to the nations. He's going to go not just to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's also going to go to the tax collectors and the sinners. He's going to go to Israel, but not just Israel. He's also going to go to the Canaanite woman. He's going to go to the Roman centurion. He's going to go to the nations. He says, I want everybody here. Now, if we're just kind of pausing, drawing attention to this, do you see the heart of God? God wants a table full of people. The invitation is wide open. And there are many people who want to be in. His, his table's filled up. But this is a little Matthew. Luke doesn't tell this part of the story. Only Matthew does. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. <laughs> this is a weird little version of the story. We've already seen exclusion and inclusion. Only a few people got invitations, and then everybody got invitations. And now some of the people who got invitations are being it's singled out because they didn't have clothes. Does God really care about what clothes we're wearing? Now, I've been to some churches where they really care about what clothes you're wearing, and you might be asked to leave or at least asked not to serve based on what you're wearing or not wearing. Um, I've, I've seen some places where they have like ties in the men's bathroom, where you have to put one of those on if you don't have one. That's not at all what he's talking about here, right? This is a metaphor for something else that's happening. But in another way, we're kind of sympathetic to this guy. He was just like on the streets, and he happened to get this invitation. He didn't get to save the date and then the later invitation. He was just said, come on in. The wedding is ready. Come on in. And then he shows up, just as he's asked to do, and he doesn't have the clothes on. How could you expect him to have the clothes on? <laughs> So at, at some point, we're a little sympathetic to this, but I think there's more going on here. You see, in that time, there was a high cultural expectation for what you would wear to weddings. There's actually records of people who would put spies in the wedding party whose sole job was to look and make sure everybody was dressed according to dress code. And if you weren't, you would get sent out. So in our day, you might think, oh, he's cut off, cut off guard, didn't realize this. In that day, everybody knows that this is a cultural expectation. This is an intentionally dishonoring and disruptive act that would have been um, an act of shame for the host of the party. How did, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? There seems to be, in many weddings at that time, almost like a bouncer at the door who's, who's like coat checking and doing things like that. This is such a weird way to ask it. I, do you all see where he says, friend? How did you get in here, friend? I want that to sit with you for just a second. I'll come back to that at the very end. Who is the friend? Okay. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's like that escalated quickly. We, we went from a wedding to hell just outside? And over clothing? Like, what is happening here? It's so striking to go, to go all, the whole story, really. Uh, only you were invited, come. No, we don't want to come. Well, if you don't want to come, everybody can come. Okay, I'll come. No, you get out. It's like this tension of inclusion and exclusion is just right in our faces. Who gets to be at the table? Who gets to be at the table? And the answer is in this summary statement at this last verse of the parable. 
This is where Jesus is trying to draw it home. Do you see what I mean by parables? It's like, this isn't clear. This is going to sit with us. That's how they're designed. They're stories that are memorable, that are obscure and clear in their own ways, in their own times. He says, this is the point. Many, many are invited. Many are called. But few are chosen. That word chosen is, is the elect. Many are called, few are chosen. It's a Semitic way of saying everyone and not everyone. You see that tension of exclusion and inclusion? It's right here. That tension of divine responsibility. Is this God's doing or human responsibility? Is this our doing? It's right here. Hmm. Let's sit with it for a second. I want to go back to those wedding garments, though. I think this is a really important theme. So let's look at like a biblical theology, a little wedding boutique of what it would look like to find robes of righteousness in the storyline of Scripture. This question really comes to us in, in the, you see it up there. Is this Christ's righteousness or is it ours? In, in Scripture, robes of righteousness, the wedding garments are a way of talking about somebody who comes to repentance and someone who, who repents and practices righteousness. It looks like being clothed by God. So some people argue this is, this is God clothing his wedding guests. Where do they get this idea? That this is Christ's righteousness coming outside of us. Well, there seem to be a few weddings, especially royal weddings, even one in the book of Esther, Esther chapter 6, where when the king invites you to his wedding, the robe is provided at the door. He's going to give you a royal robe to wear at this event. If that's the case, it's nothing you even bring from home. It's not like you shouldn't have been prepared. It's like somebody met you at the door, gave you the robe, and you either put it on or didn't. Now, there's good reason to think this is the righteousness of Christ that's given to us at the door whenever we come into the kingdom. This is where the story of God starts in Genesis chapter 3. The first people ever clothed are Adam and Eve. And who clothes them? They do not clothe themselves except with the, the fig leaves. God, he kills an animal, and, and through the blood of the animal, he clothes these people. God is the one who clothes them with righteousness. He covers them in his mercy. In the book of Isaiah, he's talking about armor, and he says that God the Father is going to put his righteousness on his people. He's going to clothe them. In the letters of Paul, the apostle, he says, I don't stand here in my own righteousness. I stand in the righteousness of Christ through faith in God. He says, I'm not here on my own. In the book of Revelation, it says that the, the, the saints are given a robe. They're given the robe. And it says, where did these people come from? It says, these are the ones who dip their robes in the blood of the Lamb and who have been washed clean. So there's this major theme in Scripture that we are not the one who's clothes ourselves. But on the other hand, there's also this major theme in Scripture that we've got to put on the clothes. Paul is constantly saying, you need to put on the armor. You need to put on the clothes. He says, put on Christ. Put him on. Clothe yourselves. It's, it's in Romans. It's in Galatians. It's in Ephesians. It's in Colossians. This is a main metaphor in how the apostle... You have a responsibility to put the thing on. In Revelation 19, at the wedding feast, it says the, the wedding is here. The, the bride and, and the Messiah, they're getting married and you're invited. 
And it says, you need to dress in fine linen. What is the fine linen? It says, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the people of God, of the saints. So is this Christ's righteousness that's given to us, or is this our righteousness that we put on? And Scripture is saying both very loudly. <laughs> now, some people kind of say, well, it's got to be one or the other. Let me, let me be clear in terms of church history. Every believer agrees that we do not merit our salvation. We do not put on our own righteousness and stand before God. We do not get our own invitation. to. We don't get to write our invitations. It's like if you try to make your own currency. It's not good. <laughs> it doesn't get you anything. It is, there, there have been a few people who claimed otherwise, and the church has denounced them as heretics. We are saved by grace and grace alone. We are saved by grace. But on the other hand, all Christians also agree that you have to put on the clothes and demonstrate righteousness, not as merit for your salvation, but as evidence of your salvation. There are lots of things that Christians disagree about, but we all agree on this. If you look at Luther, if you look at Calvin, if you look at Augustine, these are like the main thinkers <laughs> across Christian history, and they're all seeing this the same way, that yes, Christ gives us his righteousness in a free invitation and we put it on and demonstrate that we are part of the elect through our righteousness. It's not an either or, it's a both and. In other words, it's free and costly grace. The grace is for you, it is free, it is for everyone. The invitation is for the many. But there are few who are chosen. And how do you know who are chosen? It's the people wearing the clothes. It's costly. And Matthew never shies away from the costly nature of the kingdom of God. This is the drumbeat from beginning to end. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. He says, this is how you'll know who's in the kingdom. You will know them by their fruits. You, you'll see their work. You'll, you'll know them. Over and over, Matthew is drawing attention to these sayings of Jesus that are elevating our righteousness. Um, one of my favorite authors is Dallas Willard. He says, there's this great omission. That's the name of the book, The Great Omission. He says, there's this great omission from the great commission. He says, we've just dropped discipleship as if obedience to Christ even matters. <laughs> of course it matters. Jesus is saying, I want you to count the cost because there is a cost. Everyone, many are called, but few are chosen. Commentators kind of put this together in a number of ways, but ultimately they all end up in the same chorus. Klein Snodgrass. Matthew consistently reminds his readers that the unlimited grace of the kingdom always brings with it unlimited demand. The invitation to God's table is sheer grace, but it is never cheap grace. You see over and over in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and certainly in this text too, both of those are there. And so we're left with that John Newton quote. If ever I reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. There's an invitation to come to the wedding banquet. He says, it's ready. 
the groom, he's come. He's here. And he's saying, I want you there at the celebration. And when you start mixing metaphors from the book of Revelation, when you see the wedding banquet kind of take shape, you realize that you're not just a guest. You're the bride. You're the one who's adorned, made beautiful. You're not bringing in your scraps of clothing. You're given this beautiful dress that's been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. And he says, I love you. I want to be with you forever. And I want to, I see you, I know you. I want to spend my life with you. It's a wedding. He's saying, I, you, but some of us are thinking, yeah, but I got a field. I've got my business, or I've got my degree, or I, I've got my family, or I've got this other thing. And you may not be the one who are hostile, like taking the servants captive and, and mistreating them shamefully and killing, but you're just like, I don't really care. And he's saying, he's not going to call forever. You're, you're called, you're invited, but the invitation has an expiration date. And feel that today. Peter, a friend of Jesus, he wrote a letter. It's called Second Peter. And he says, I want you to be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. You don't earn your calling. You don't earn your election. He says, but you make it sure. How? He says, by putting these things into practice. It's a life of discipleship that demonstrates the sure calling and election that you are engaged and the wedding is coming. But ultimately, in this, in this series, I'm, I want to end with Jesus. And I want to ask, how did we get the invitation to begin with? How can we be at the table? How can we belong? The free open calling to us came because of a costly personal calling for Jesus. Jesus experienced the death that we deserve so that we could experience the life of heaven. He was mistreated, treated shamefully. He was killed like the servants. He was destroyed by the same Roman army who would go in later and destroy the city of Jerusalem. He became friend to the good and the wicked. And he shared a table with them. After this story, Jesus calls one man friend. As he's sharing the table, he looks at Judas. And he says, friend, do what you need to do. How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? But instead of tying him up and throwing him out and making sure that he didn't do anything, he just said, do what you need to do, friend. And then as this friend left the table, this is what they did to Jesus. They went out to the garden, they tied him hand and foot, and then they threw him outside into the darkness. He was crucified in the dark. And there was weeping 
his disciples, the women, and there was gnashing of teeth as they put the, the crown on him and mocked him and beat him and spit on him. You see, Jesus experienced all of the devastation that we fear so that we could be welcomed in. He was excluded from the, the, the Passover table of Israel. It's the next day. He, he's cut off. As they're slaughtering the lambs to remember how God passed over their homes, the Lamb of God is being slaughtered on the cross. As they remembered how the destroyer would not touch their firstborn son, the firstborn of all creation, the Son of God, was crucified. And so a free calling, an invitation to us, comes at great cost to him. There is free and costly grace. To us, a free gift. To him, what a cost. And the invitation won't last forever. So come to the wedding. Make your calling and election sure. I want to end with just a reading. Would you stand as I read Revelation 19, 1 through 9? After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Lord God, would you sink these words in our heart? Comfort those who need comfort, convict those who need convicted, and draw us to yourself in that great day. Amen. God bless you.